because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Anyway, my point is just, yes, like all we do is talk about poop and farts. <laughs> Fart noggin. That's my life. On that note, welcome to Cows in the Field. Uh, this is a movie podcast, perhaps the only movie podcast named after an offhand remark of Werner Herzog. My name is Justin. And I'm Laura. And we are talking today about the 1999 existential ennui office drama office space. And we're very excited to be joined by my parents, Robert and Cheryl Koo. Hello. 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 In the studio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is cool, man. And we've already shouted you guys out on the podcast a few times. So because, many times. You know, you've listened to a few episodes and you've demanded they come in and set the record straight on a few things. So do you want to just get that out of the way? Yeah, is there something you need to get off your chest, Cheryl? Oh, no. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You sure? Okay. Yeah. If it comes to you, we can always Yeah, and maybe I'll just remind you of some of the things that I've said that irritated you guys <laughs> or you feel like we're factually inaccurate. <laughs> um, so Office Space, this is a movie that came out in 1999, which is really a, a, a glorious year for movies. And there were a lot of really excellent movies about the same kind of themes. Um, this is a movie that stars Ron Livingston as Peter, what was his last name? Peter Gibbons. And Jennifer Aniston uh, as Joanna, and then his two friends, uh, David Herman and AJ Naidu as Michael Bolton and Samir. And, and yeah, and it follows the story of Peter Gibbons as he tries desperately to achieve his dreams of doing nothing and succeeds, I guess, in some sense. I mean, he tries to find success in the workplace uh, and ultimately finds his, that his passion is really working with his hands, I suppose not white collar work. But in the process, he has to go through quite a few trials. He has to deal with his shitty boss, uh, played by Gary Cole, Bill Lumberg, and a series of other bosses. How many bosses does he have in this movie? Eight. Eight. Yeah. And in the process, he goes through a kind of hypnotism therapy where he's hypnotized, but in the process of hypnotism, the therapist dies of a heart attack. So he's left in his hypnotic state for the rest of the movie, and I guess presumably for the rest of his life, and um, at which time he blisses out and he becomes this sort of Zen master and he takes everything in stride. He's open and honest with everyone around him to a fault oftentimes. Um, and then the movie kind of changes gears a little bit. He gets promoted and his friends uh, get fired. And so he they decide jointly to, because it's unfair, understandably, he's not doing any work. They're, you know, fairly working for the company um they decide jointly to rip off the company in tech is that what it's called in yeah. or Intertrobe. Intertrobe is the computer com competitor yeah and uh they they pull off this scam that works a little bit too well and puts them in a precarious situation where they might then end up having to go to prison that is not something they want to do and so peter tries to take the fall and he's saved in a strange way by Milton, played by Stephen Root, in, in just like a fantastic role. I feel like Stephen Root is, he's always like a great character yeah, actor. He's never bad, yeah, I would say. He just kind of 
he sort of st- stole the show in this one. I feel like this was the thing people took away from Office Space mm-hmm. um, was the Milton character. Okay, so that's a little synopsis of the movie. So we had asked you guys when we wanted to invite you on the podcast what movie you wanted to do, and you guys had suggested Office Space. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what drew you to this movie, why you wanted to do it? Well, a number of things for for the beginning. I used to work for myself, but about uh, 11 years ago, I had to start working for the corporation. This movie really spoke to me. Even when I was working by myself uh, a long time ago. In what way? Tell me a bit about that. Uh, <laughs> well, I I hate bureaucracy. <laughs> okay. I hated my bosses. I hated my job. I just hated going to meetings about meetings so we could <laughs> cut back on meetings. You know? And I hated all the corporate slogans we had to come up with. You know, like the ones you see in the movie, like, Plan to plan, or <laughs> how do you plan? It was plans? innovation plus technology equals in attack? That was one of the oh, one of the banners. That's why they're called in attack. Yeah. yeah, that's why they're in attack. Innovation and technology. Yeah, and there was another one. What's the banner? Is this good for the company? Is this good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a lot of <laughs> we had to do a lot of brainstorming to come up with like catchphrases like that, which oh which was so horrible. <laughs> <laughs> not your job not my job but i think the funny thing about that is that like that is the that's like the the ladder that everyone is climbing to some extent right like so if you are successful in your job pretty much all of us work for some kind of bureaucracy in our lives and if you're successful in your job you were promoted often to what a middle manager or an mm-hmm. upper manager like that's kind of like the the position people as, as, you know strive for um well that's why uh Peter Gibbons' character appealed to me because <laughs> I didn't really want to get promoted and I, I didn't want to go up in the company. I just really just wanted to take along and zone out. Maybe, <laughs> I did more than 15 minutes of work, though, you know, yeah. in yes. an entire week. Yeah, you work hard. But, boy, that was very attractive. Yeah. I was thinking about getting hypnotized myself. And- <laughs> <laughs> what would you say? Would you say this is that's a scientifically accurate uh, depiction of hypnotism? Oh, I've never been hypnotized, but I'd like to try it. <laughs> I think people take drugs also to do the same thing. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, I think actually thinking about this movie as like Peter is basically a drug addict is an interesting way of thinking about it. Like he's basically snowed himself and then he just goes through life in this kind of stoned state. And a lot of people do that, you know? Like, I knew a lot of people mm-hmm. in high school who were stoned all the time because they just couldn't deal with the irritation of whatever that was going on in high school, all the social drama, all of the work that they thought was stupid. So they just get high and be in this kind of weird zen state for the entire day. <laughs> then they're just gutting a fish on their desk. Right. So this movie would appeal to them, too. I think, no, I think that explains partly why the movie had such broad appeal, weirdly, in, in video, on, in, um, in, on video, basically, when it, when it was, it was like a blockbuster darling, right? This movie didn't do well at the block, at the, at the box office, but afterwards, it, people just were continually rediscovering it, and yeah. that's when I saw it. I didn't see it in theaters. No. Yeah, but it also... That makes sense, too, for why it was such a big hit with teenagers who had never worked in an office space yeah. for the most part. But, like, the bullshit of high school is a lot like the bullshit of, of uh, workspace as well. Yeah. It's a lot of work that doesn't seem, you know, at all relevant or anything or interesting. And you're forced to do it. And you're sort of forced to do it 
for extrinsic reasons, right? Everyone is working in these jobs because they need some dimension. They're not doing it for anything like, you know, passion that they have for these projects. It's just it's just a means to get money to like support themselves to have a job, uh, you know, to put food on the table to have an apartment or whatever. And it was the same thing in high school. Like, at least I felt that way. I'm sure other people disagree. But I, I didn't feel particularly excited about anything that I was learning in Everything high school. Everything was just a TPS report. Yeah, yeah, it was just all TPS reports. And it was all just like <laughs> jump through hoops. And now that I have my parents here, I can say that you guys told me that you were basically like, you just keep playing the game. Just keep playing the game. It's a, it's a game. Just just do it. Don't think too hard about why you have to do it or <laughs> what you're being taught because it might seem meaningless to you. Don't worry about that. Just play the game because what effectively you're doing is you're credentialing yourself for the next step, which is college or whatever. And I, I think that is ultimately the right advice, but I, it's sort of sad that like that was the way I saw high school because I do think it's it's a great opportunity. You know, there's so much learning that you can, can be done at that point in your life. And I didn't get the chance to do it really. I had to, it took me, it took me until college, basically. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if I said to play the game, because <laughs> as an educator, I kind of felt that. <laughs> See, this is, now you get to retort That's in right. real now time. Now I get to do the real-time retort. <laughs> it's, learning is learning. Learning is lifelong. So you learn stuff in elementary school and junior high, high school. And I think those are important things. And I guess some folks do wonder, some kids wonder, how is any of what I'm learning relevant? But it's a stepping stone and it's a process. And it's a process of learning which hopefully carries them through, not for all people to go to secondary levels of, of schooling. For you, you did. Um, and, you know, some do, some don't. And uh, But it's still important that even if you don't, you should still always remain a lifelong learner. There's mm. just a lot of stuff to learn. You come up with great slogans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should have been on slogan committee. Yeah. Um, sorry that I dropped my phone just but then. Thinking about school though as a <laughs> the the role of a student as effectively a cog in some sort of machine that is ultimately being groomed to fulfill a certain role within the society is I think the right way to think about this movie in particular, mm -hmm. because that's ultimately if you I mean the way that I think a lot of people, probably to some extent myself included thought about this movie in the context of high school was okay so you're telling me i need to get good grades go to college get a job and then what just toil away at that shitty job working with a bunch of people i don't like you know getting paid sort of a meager wage doing work i don't care about having to deal with idiot bosses for the rest of my life that's not cool that's yeah. not interesting and fulfilling and and, you know, and granted, yes, I want to have enough money to be able to live and, you know, put food on the table, but that didn't seem at all attractive or appealing to me, which I think is partly why I had such a weird roundabout path through school, because I went to music school and stuff thinking that that would be a way to pursue my passions in a, you know, to actually pursue at least a passion, to pursue music and not to just be like bound up in some cog cog in some machine just because somebody told me, well, you have to do this. You have to have these letters to, by your name. You yeah. have this kind of paper. To, to what end was always the end. question. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. So that I can have a crappy apartment and like hate my life. That's kind of the way I think I, I thought about it. I think a lot of kids thought about it at that at that point. I think that has changed. I think that time that has really that perspective has shifted to some degree in Gen Z. But I think that um that was the perspective that I had. I think that was mm -hmm. partly what attracted me to the movie. Yeah. And there's so many scenes of characters telling 
Peter, like, yeah, work just sucks. Like, that's just how it is, man. Like, nobody likes their job. You just got to go and do the thing, which I'm sure is what a million teenagers heard from their parents, too. Like, nobody really likes school, man. Nobody likes high school. Like, you just got to go. It's just what you do in life, which, you know, every I, I chafed at a yeah. little bit. <laughs> and the other thing that I chafed at was that I felt like, and I think this is true, actually, to this day, but I think that school, secondary education in particular, um, is effectively still it's finishing school for i don't know like middle class life mm. right it's like you you're learning what you everybody has to know a little bit about hamlet you mean no or? kind not quite it's that you have to know how to perform menial tasks that you don't find intrinsically interesting <laughs> or helpful uh for someone else because they've told you yeah that's what you're learning to do in i think that's really ways. what it is i think and, and to some extent that is you know, it's depressing, but it's also, I think, what people look for in in employees, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you're looking to hire someone, yeah, there's like, do you know how to code or whatever? But the other thing is, are you you're looking for like, do they have the ability to just focus on a task you don't like and just do it? Because most of the shit you're gonna get in your life is tasks you don't want to do. You're just kind of have to be handed this task, do this thing, and if if it weren't that way, then you know we live in this utopia, and that'd be great. But unfortunately, we, you know, we have to, someone has to clean toilets and someone has to go through the lines of Y2K code and clean them up, you know, like, these are just things that have to get done and, and they're not interesting. But that's the sort of sad fact of a capitalist society that we, that's where we live in. And so I think that this movie can speak to that. I think the flip side of it, though, for me is that, so by, so I should just say what I mean by that is I mean that I think it is an indictment of bureaucratic capitalism and what people would now call like sort of late capitalism, mm -hmm. this sort of very efficient system of squeezing labor out of, uh, you know, at the expense of sort of human alienation. Um, but I think on the other hand, the plight of the characters in this movie is hard for me to empathize with now because it's like in a post-2008 world, now looking at my generation and then Gen Z who compared to the Gen Xers, were basically squeezed out of the housing market and squeezed out of a lot of jobs, especially because they came of job age in 2008 or later. And so there were just no jobs. Those jobs got dried up and then they were not never replaced. Um, whereas these guys are Gen Xers sitting in a place of total privilege by comparison. So they, they all have jobs. They're not necessarily well-paying jobs, but they're so in demand that if they get fired from one job, they just go to work. At in if they get fired from Inatech, they're at Inatrobe next or Penetrobe or whatever it is. <laughs> they're just moving from place to place and it doesn't even matter. They're in such demand. But then, of course, we also know with the benefit of hindsight that in 2003 or four, Google is going to come in the scene. You've got Facebook on the horizon and all of the apps and the iPhone and, and that, that are birthed by the iPhone. And these guys are suddenly going to go from being like, kind of cogs to like suddenly being the people who are going to be the most in demand in the in the economy, right? In this sort of programmer computer economy. And they're going to actually get to do a lot of interesting creative stuff. Um, the people that are working for Google are doing kind of interesting. I think they think of it as interesting. I also think that the workplace culture is about to change. So what we saw with workplace culture in the 90s is what you get here. And I think a lot of the movie's charm is its specificity and how it connects you know how it's clearly drawn from experience and it speaks to people who've been in that environment but that's all going to change and, and suddenly it's going to go from like cubicles to open office space right and like beanbag chairs and 
right? And like latte bars and stuff. It's all going to change very soon. And that's driven, I think, to some extent by the tech industry and, and them trying to create a workplace environment that like is feels like home so that people kind of stay longer. But I also think that like, as a result, you kind of know what's on the horizon. So then I look at these characters and I think, so for instance, Peter Gibbons says at one point, well, what if we're at this job for 50 years? Like what if 50 years later, we're still at this job? And I'm thinking, you're not, you're not going to be at this job for like five years because Google is going to hire you, right? To come and like do their search engine algorithm and you're going to be a millionaire. So it's like, I kind of, in hindsight, you're just like, yeah, your life is pretty good. So, I mean, how, I don't know how to totally empathize with your suffering in this case. Well, in my situation, I joined the corporate world 10 years after this movie was made, and it still spoke to me. <laughs> hey, I'm, not in, I'm not a tech person like Peter Gibbons, but it just spoke to me because of all these uh, senseless bureaucratic steps that we still had to jump over even the job was in healthcare, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be in accounting or whatever. I'm sure a lot of the aspects are still there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. I would I just left the workplace a couple of years ago to be with our son. And I that a lot of this movie rung true to me as well. I don't think I mean, most offices are not like the Google San Francisco Bay Area style, like, you know, snack bar, like the kind of things that they're gonna go on to lampoon in, in Silicon Valley yeah. uh, that for the majority, except for on the coast. I don't think that's how most people's workplaces are. I mean, I think that's true. That probably can explain the enduring, um, the enduring affection people have for the TV show, the office. Mm -hmm. we, I mean, in our situation, uh, they actually took coffee away for us because they, they, they had deemed it was a, an unnecessary expense. So oh, we no. should might as well just save a few hundred bucks a month and, you know, it'll make us better. Well, the other reason why, Robert, you told me they took the coffee and the, the lounge away was they were worried that you guys were going to get together and talk about the company. Oh, no. And that, yes. you know, they could sort of get together and start sort of, you know, <laughs> conniving about. Create a revolution. Yeah. So we just do that in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so, so effectively, they took away the water cooler. Yeah. And that was what they were concerned yeah. about. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean... So that's a part of that, that kind of part of workplace culture is never going to go away is, is, is the superiors being skeptical or uh, second guessing their employees as to whether they're going to be efficient with the current system and finding and thinking that they have to incentivize them as such. And you see this, I mean, you see this even today with like, people not allowing, they'll like say like, if you're going to work from home, you can only work from home like midweek, because apparently there's too much temptation for people to just take off if they're working from home uh -huh. like on Friday to like, mm -hmm. so like th that's what they say. So they, so they, they won't, allow, if they're going for like a partial mixed workplace, they'll mm -hmm. say like midweek only for, for the, for the like work from home day. But again, I think, I think that's an inevitable thing because people are always skeptical of other people's motivations. And they're always just going to say like, ah, I don't trust you. So I feel like I have to treat you like a child and take away your coffee or you know, not give you, you know, make you punch in and out or whatever it is. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's not going to go away. But I guess I, I guess I just think, though, that the difference is that and maybe, you know, in different fields, it's different. But of course, these guys are in tech. And so their jobs and lives are going to be very different from this. That's mm -hmm. as far as I can tell, that's that's like very likely to happen in other places. I think that's you're right. That's probably not going to be that way. Um, but uh, 
you know, it, it, it is interesting. Of course, with sectors that are that are on the downturn, it's going to get worse, right? So tech was on the upturn, and they just nobody realized that. But like, for the stuff that's on the downturn, like you know, I'm in higher education. That there were so many jobs that were cut in the in the both in 2008 and then in 2020 because of the pandemic that are just never coming back. Yeah, and like, you know, that that just creates this atmosphere of total fear and panic. And then when you get a job, this feeling of like, oh my God, I'm so lucky to have this job. If they take away my coffee, I don't care. I have a job. Like, do you know, here's here's my arm to chop off I'll, <laughs> to keep this job, you know? And that's the feeling I think of a lot of millennials and, and Gen Zers now is that they're just like, which limb do you want? I'll give it to you. I, I would like health insurance. <laughs> But like what Samir said, that kind exactly. of uh, job security would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So Samir, as the immigrant, right, under sort of underhand, uh, doesn't come from the same sort of privilege that that Michael Bolton and and Peter Gibbons do, and so he he sort of recognizes that his position is much more precarious. He himself may be on A some kind of work visa, visa exactly. Yeah. So his situation may be tied up to, and I think that is that speaks more to the situation of I think millennials uh, on the whole, uh, because yeah, they're just I mean they're looking at a much more bleak environment, and as far as I can tell. You know, it's not against anything against Mike Judge. Nobody really saw that coming. You know, nobody saw 2008 and then this the subsequent effects on the economy and the housing You know, the house the, the housing market not ever coming back really um, in the same way. Uh, not not in the sense of coming back in that there was no buildup of inventory, right? And so as a result, you know, you have all these millennials who are like, "Great, I can I want to buy a house," and then they're like, "Well, there are no houses available for you, so <laughs> you know, fuck off." So would you say, Justin? <clears throat> Was there a swing because back in my parents' day, when you had a job, you stayed with that job. That you were you were very dedicated to the company um, or to the institution that you worked for, and often had a lifelong job. Like you, you had that dedication. And I think we went through a period of time where perhaps you know this movie is highlighting that people just weren't so enamored with their jobs, and you know. They weren't as dedicated. And am I hearing you say that now you feel that the younger folks are actually really happy that they have a job? Would they then tend to be more dedicated? Have we just yeah. seen, mm. a, seen a swing? Yeah. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think you're right that they're happy to have a job, but I don't think they feel any loyalty necessarily to the company. Um, and that's what you're talking about, right? That's It's what I'm talking about loyalty. because that's where, you know, in working – Um, with dad, your dad, that, you know, the dedication, um, yeah. we never often found the people um, yeah. to have that. And I was lamenting mm -hmm. that with my father one time, and we got in a big discussion about mm. it. And so I'm just wondering why. I mean, if they're happy to have a job right yeah. now, I don't understand why they wouldn't feel that. But perhaps it's some of the things that the movie speaks to, which yeah. is, are they in fact treating the employees well. That's what I think yeah, it is. That kind of comes up yeah. when the fellows um, are doing, you know, interviewing the people and saying, you know, what would make you want to, you know, want to stay here and work. They were trying to see what would incentivize, obviously not the Hawaiian Day shirt thing that they were trying <laughs> exactly. to Exactly, yes. You know, we all had yes. this. Yeah, wearing a Hawaiian we shirt does not make me want to stay at a place for 50 years. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but, but it looked like, you know, in your dad's time, People were had things like pensions and they had things like 
uh, I don't know. They had buy in. Watches. Well, they had buy into the company in a way. <laughs> they, it was also easier because you only needed to have one working um, parent of the couple because it wasn't a situation where um, the economy had shifted to where now you need to have two working parents in the family. And so it's just infinitely more complex. When you have a two two body situation where both people have to work, um, at what company loyalty are you going to have if one person's on one side of the country and another person's on the other side of the country? Like, just, it's just so much more difficult. But if it's like, oh, I got a job at in at Detroit Motor Company, and my wife doesn't do anything, great, we're just moving to Detroit. Like, it's there's no problem. So I think that you know that kind of system can breed that kind of uh, company loyalty. I think the other thing is that the companies. At that time, there was a great, a high rate of unionization that has, that has dropped. And so if you had a problem, you go to your union head and then you fight and you collectively bargain for the situation. Mm -hmm. There's no unions anymore. So if you're screwed, the only power you have as an employee is to leave. That's the only threat you have uh, to get anything over your company. And so, of course, you're, I think if that's the recipe, of course, you're going to see more uh, disloyalty among, uh, among workers. Yeah. I think... Um we had a lot of young people that worked at an entry level in the place I worked before. And there was always this sort of push pushback or sort of su surprise that that older generations middle management would express that they often that the turnover was so high that they wouldn't stay exactly. in that role for more than a couple of years. Uh, but these were young people who often had like higher ed degrees. Um, and I got I got the feeling, I mean, I talking them too, I I know this from from talking to them that there's a feeling of like needing to catch up when you've got, you know incredible amounts of student loan and you've maybe done a graduate degree and you're still only at an entry-level job that pays really poorly. And if you can get something better, like you got to move, you know, you don't want to wait for the place that you're currently at to um, reward your good work in their own time. You know, um, a lot of people are trying to to start their lives uh, in their mid-20s, which is like where Peter and apparently where Peter and Michael and, and yeah. Samir are. Um, yeah, they're like a couple years out of college. Yeah, but uh, there's so many people are dealing with massive amounts of student debt, you yeah. know, that dealing with a crappy paycheck and six roommates, you know, is is a tough time. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas I don't get the sense that that's something that like Peter's struggling with. Yeah, exactly. I'd like to move us right along to a Peter Gibbons. Now, we had a chance to meet this young man, and boy, that's just a straight shooter with upper management written all over him. Ooh, yeah. Um, I'm going to have to go ahead and sort of disagree with you there. Do you also feel there's been, I don't know what you would call it, a societal, I don't know, some kind of societal thing that's happened where back in the day, people grew up, you know, married the high school sweetheart, got a job, didn't move away. They literally went and got a job or went to school in the same city that they grew up in. And I think then there are younger, the newer generations, it's no big deal to go clear across the country to go to a college mm -hmm. and then clear across the other side of the country to do grad school and then somewhere else to get a job. And who cares where the family is? You know, we're just not as yeah. tight. That's changed for sure. I think, I think that's changed. I yeah. think that may have also although, affected a little bit. Yeah, although I think among lower income people, the they there's a tendency to stay in one place in this in a different way. So okay. you, I think it's just that we know a lot of people who are highly educated and run in certain circles who for whom moving for their job and their career isn't a big deal. Isn't a big deal, yeah. right? And maybe it's a so, cultural thing then yeah. too, is that there are some cultures that still maintain the very. Important. Of the familial, familial bond. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Right. Exactly. 
So to bring this back to office space, I yeah. wanted to think about um, some of the bureaucratic nightmares that <laughs> Peter has to deal with. One of which is the TPS reports, which actually I, I learned uh, on Wikipedia that TPS report has now become used as a synonym for just meaningless office task. <laughs> so people will say like, you know, if you have to fill out some like, I don't know, survey for like your quality of life at the office, they'll be like, oh, I have to do my TPS report. And that's just understood. Um but uh, so do you guys, what were some of your experiences with bureaucracy that sort of turned you off of bureaucracies? Uh, well, uh, getting the feeling that the employees didn't have any say, that all the decisions were being made for us. So when we had staff meetings, uh, people would just sign in and leave, even though we had a thousand employees, maybe five people were in the auditorium for the meeting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the mandatory meeting. <laughs> because what's the point of going? Because, you know, all the decisions are made and they're just basically there to tell you what they decided. Mm. And uh, that's the way it's going to be. So that's, we set the rules and uh, we want to give the illusion that you're taking part of the rules, but you have nothing to do with the decision making that's being made down. We're just going to pass it down to you. So was there a lot of like fake feedback? Like, okay, we want to hear from you now. And then they'd nod and then that would be the end of that. They yeah. never did never, nothing would come of it. Nothing comes of it because there's no yeah. point. Because number one, if you were to speak up, uh, people would start to label, they would start to label you as a troublemaker. And and uh, we don't allow any independent thought. And I really got the sense of that when they were hiring new people. To, it wasn't so much based on talent, but whether they thought this person would fit in and be a cog as part of the big machinery and get along only with the boss, really. They didn't care about anything else. You had to be really good with the boss. You'd have to go in on Saturday if the boss asked yeah, you. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Like we were asked a lot to go in on Saturdays <laughs> yeah. and uh, be productive and go ahead and travel 100 miles to another office and, and service that area. Yeah. And you don't get paid for that. And you'd have to go to a lot of meetings and become the head of the department. But... There's no extra pay for that. Mm, I see. I mean, depressing. In the, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It is interesting that like when you when you're not working a sort of shift job that is paid by the hour. So I was thinking a little bit about this actually. Let me step back. I was thinking about the difference between shift work and salaried work. So mm. in shift work, if the boss asks you to come in on Saturday, you can make that calculation in your head. You can be like, Do I want the extra? 10 bucks an hour I'm getting, right, for the eight hours I'm going to work on Saturday or not. And I can make that calculation and maybe the boss will strong arm me. But either way, if I go in, I'm getting the extra 10 bucks an hour. Yeah, so if you're a salaried worker, you're not necessarily, you're probably not getting that extra money. You're not getting some bonus or anything. It's just the expectation that you drop everything to do this for the job. And, but of course, the different, the flip of is that as a salaried worker, you can do 15 minutes of work <laughs> for the week and 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 you still collect your paycheck, right? Like can Milton I... was still getting a paycheck in this movie, even though he wasn't doing any work. He didn't, he wasn't even on. He was collating, excuse you. I guess. And he was fired a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, he had already been fired. <laughs> he said he was collating something while he listening was. to his radio. He was listening to the radio. Collating. And his, collating. And collating his paper. Yeah, yeah, I've done my share fair share of collating. What is, um, co hold on, what is collating? <laughs> I, I don't know what that is. Um, it's, it's putting papers in the right order. If you had like a four-page, uh, a four-page document, uh, you can either and for your photocopying it, you can either photocopy it so it's page one, two, three, four, or you can do fifty copies of page one, fifty copies of page two, fifty I copies see. of page three, fifty copies of page 
for and then, and then you collate, collate it <laughs> <laughs> exactly and i don't maybe print copiers back in the day didn't collate for you i don't think they did aha uh-huh. okay mm-hmm. so i'm now young enough that most copiers will collate for you but all the same i've done some collating in my life <laughs> have you done collating <laughs> probably a little bit i i can't speak too much to the whole office you know uh cubicle space because i worked in the operating room so um, that oh, was, it been was in still a, a hospital bureaucracy, but that's not really a cubicle. So, Justin, can I tell you an off to- slightly off-topic story that yeah. regarding uh, being asked to come in on a Saturday? Mm-hmm. I once worked not in an office, in shift work at a bakery, and I came in when I wasn't supposed to, and I got in trouble <laughs> for doing extra work off the clock. And you were just like, I don't want to be paid for this. I just well, need to get Well, you know the what happened? Done. Yes. So I worked in a bakery, and I had I got a call for a special cake. And I forgot about it. And it was ne- it was for a birthday cake for the next day. And I was I woke up in the, like in the morning and I was like, oh, my God, this person needs their cake. And instead of just calling the bakery and telling them to do it, I just decided to come in. I didn't punch in. I did the cake and I left. And I was got in big trouble later because um, <laughs> you you can't be working in a space not on the clock because of something if you slipped and fell. Interesting. Yeah, they might. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I didn't know anything about that. I was just in college and I was like, I have to make this cake. <laughs> I like came in on a Saturday and uh, had a talking to you from my boss. That was another, that actually reminds me of another <laughs> thing. I remember you guys talking about when you were the bosses and not working for a company, but was OSHA regulations and complaining about that. Oh, yeah, because healthcare has so many regulations and, and I think rightfully slow. Um, you have to protect the lives um of people and so you know the the hospital bureaucracy again is you know a lot of layers and and sometimes a lot of meetings and things just to get things done but it's driven by the regulations i can't speak to other types of jobs um i'm sure there's a lot of regulation in a lot of other uh, industries but healthcare has a mountain of them mm-hmm. and yes a lot of paperwork and hoop jumping. But, you know, I didn't hate that. It's like they set these rules in place to protect people's lives. So as much as we kind of hate being told what to do and they come up with all of the stupid paperwork you have to do, I was okay with it. I mean, maybe You're other pro people bureaucracy. Aren't, well, that's but, what I want. Well, <laughs> I'm I'm pro I'm pro looking after people and I was middle management yeah. or upper management um at that level, but um yeah, I mean, sometimes I understand. It's a pain, but sometimes I understand. There's just sometimes you have to do it. That's yeah. the, yeah. And I think that's the thing about this movie that is slightly um, skewed. Exactly. That's a good word. Skewed is a good word. Because the movie never interrogates why the bureaucracy is so bad. Like, why are things this way? Why is Lumberg just this kind of ghost-like entity who floats around and makes people's lives hell why is, you know, Milton forgotten in the system and that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. You know, why are the why is this life so miserable for Peter Gibbons? And I I I think that um part of the reason why bureaucracies tend to do this, tend to have this effect on people, is because they're aiming to standardize. They want to standardize things for the purpose of fairness so that people are all treated the same. They all have like a fair shake at whatever in, in, within the system. And also so that the product has a certain type of standardization yeah. so that you have a chain of command for who to go if there's a mistake. You also have a, um, a chain of command if, if there's a, you know, if there's a complaint. 
and so on. And you have to have all these little disparate parts that come together to create whatever it is that you're doing, Y2K software in this case or whatever. Um, but that bank software, I guess. Um, but you know, that is that takes a lot of people doing different things and they somehow all have to be coordinated and the bureaucracy is what helps coordinate them. Um, <laughs> Rob is shaking his head. <laughs> uh, I, I, I never saw any of that. All I saw was a lot of people having a job, being a manager. Like I probably had eight managers too. <laughs> and I I often as a cog or as the employee would feel, I'm not in, man I wasn't in management. It would be nice to maybe get rid of more than half of the managers because we could do a lot better and I could do a lot better if I didn't have to go to so many meetings. Yeah. And uh, I know what to do. I, I know how to contribute. It is interesting that meetings didn't come up in this movie at all in, yeah. a, in, a, in a discussion about like, yeah. you know, that's like, that's a feature of the show, The Office. They mm. had the meeting where he was introducing, we're going to have. That's true. They had that that yeah, that's a big stand up meeting. Yeah. But you know, but I mean, like your calendar is wall to wall, oh. nine to five meetings. Right. And you're looking at it being like, where the hell do I do my work? Like I've been meetings all day. This is crazy, and that was something that I that I saw a lot in an office space. Right, and oftentimes I couldn't go to my manager because he or she they were in meetings all day. <laughs> I said, yes. "Well, what are they doing?" I, mean, I used to hover outside my manager's meeting office, like between, like at the like half hour mark, to try and get her in between meetings because she would be like wall to wall, and then she'd be like, "I gotta go pick up my kids," because like, yeah, it's five, <laughs> you gotta go. <laughs> you know, um, it's yeah, it's crazy, but I think like meetings thing that was a constant discussion, and 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 I and I think is a big problem for a lot of people because it is that issue between individuality and and like allowing people to to have the space to like have their own ideas or do their own work and then also be try to be collaborative and collaboration means meetings because we all have to talk to each other about how we agree about stuff uh and uh then all of a sudden you know this person wants to join in this person needs to be involved and then you've got a meeting that's really unproductive because there's 30 people in the meeting right. <laughs> nothing gets done in those meetings and and for me as a, a boss or self-employed person to become a cog, it was very difficult. So I was very aware of this. And because of my, a lot of my colleagues had come out of their college directly into the, you know, the employee role. So they were never their own boss like I was. So I was often bringing up all kinds of things and they would say, you know, that's not very productive. <laughs> you're not a team player. And I thought, <laughs> you know, I, Gotta leave this place. <laughs> so, what, but you know, we were very because we were in private practice. So it was we got to have that opportunity to be creative, and we had to get the work yeah, done. There's no room for creativity, right? Right, but that's the middle managers are supposed to have. You know, our managers are supposed to have the meetings for the. Creativity. And that's why they're middle managers because they have no creativity. <laughs> <laughs> This is good. This is like this is philosophical therapy for for the last yeah. 30 years. Um but can I make the case for meetings really quickly because I don't want to be contrarian but I do think it's important that we understand the role in the in the function of the bureaucracy. So yes. the the role of the meeting is not I think to get things done in an efficient way. If it were it would be the worst way possible to do it. No. If you want to have something done efficiently, a meeting is is not the way to do it. Yeah. The reason we have meetings is to involve people democratically mm -hmm. in the in this in 
deciding what to do collectively about a, about a particular problem. Now, we don't need to do that. But I think most companies recognize that there's a certain amount of buy-in that you need from your employees. And that needs to be resolved at a meeting where there are equals at a table who are deciding and perhaps voting or at least sharing grievances and that kind of thing. Yes, it's annoying. And it takes a lot of time that would could be maybe spent better elsewhere. But I think the, the impulse for meetings is comes from there. And I think that's ultimately a good impulse. Because if, if it were otherwise, you would have effectively a rule by a kind of you know, despot middle manager. And that would probably, no, I think that would probably be worse because you would have people making (laughs) decisions unilaterally that would then, you know, if that impacts you unfairly, you're going to be, you're not going to be happy about that. Well, that's exactly what I was watching. Our manager, our boss telling us in the meeting that it's, he wants everybody's opinion, but he really didn't want our opinion. He's basically telling us what he's decided and it makes makes him feel good that we're all agreeing with him. Yeah, we don't so want to get fired. Not the that's obviously a toxic environment. <laughs> yeah, that's not but, good. But yeah, no, I think you're right. It's like we all chafe at having a crazy wall to wall meeting day. But also, we would be far more frustrated at you know at having just unilateral decisions handed to us and told what to do all day long, and not actually like involved in some of the in having your own voice in the yeah. in the smaller projects that you have a hand in. Yeah, let's let's be one hundred percent clear. Unilateral decision trumps unilateral decision plus you get the f- to fake, you know, this kind of fake, fake ex- buy-in, fake buy-in kind of thing. Totally. Which, but, but, but what I think is, is that like true democratic decision making, I think trumps unilateral decision making. That's what I'm trying to say. And I, I think that's what is like, they're trying to have at least the yeah. semblance of if they're failing at it, then that's bad. I, I think, of course, but, and but I, I think suspect that's, that that's what's driving this. Yeah. Um, and I think it all comes from a good place. In terms of like from my office, and I know that's very different from Rob's, but, you know, the part of the reason that things got a little bit bloated was because we were trying to have more pe- more voices in the room, yeah. more perspectives. But there just gets a tipping point where that is no longer productive when there's too many people in a room. It's like a hard balance to yeah. have. Like we wanted people to feel involved. And yet when you have too large of a group, then it's hard to to make collective decisions quickly. Yeah. Um, but it, it comes from a good place. Weirdly, I like meetings because I like to go from place to place to place and just keep moving my body. I don't like to sit in front of a desk all day. Fair enough. I mean, there's, <laughs> so if I saw a meeting day, I would be like, yes. It's not as if there is only one system, which is sort of like group meetings all the time that make decisions jointly, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I think, though, the other aspect of this movie is not just the sort of bureaucratic component, but also the sort of this dimension in which the job that these guys are doing fully alienates them from their labor, partly because the job they're doing feels like it's replaceable. And it, in yeah. fact, is replaceable. Two of the guys are fired and replaced by recent grads or whatever who they can just exploit at, at a lower wage. Mm-hmm. But it's also the kind of thing where it's alienating because they don't feel like their job is interesting in any level. And it just feels like all they're doing is trying to appease the bosses and not get caught in making some mistake because then they have to listen to 12 bosses reprimand them. Um, and I think that is a component of of the sort of late capitalist workforce that is has nothing really to do with bureaucracy because you could be doing that in a bureaucracy. You could just do, be doing that as like, I don't know, as like a, a freelancer, um, just doing menial work. Like the people that work on Amazon Mechanical Turk that are just filling out surveys uh, on, online or whatever for a low wage, um, that is, you know, 
mind-numbing work, but there's not really any bureaucracy that they're dealing with. So mm-hmm. I think that's a different component of the of the job. I was wondering if that guy if that spoke to you guys. I mean, you are a doctor, so your work is I I supp- I would imagine intrinsically interesting and fulfilling and tangible and tangible in a way that Peter Gibbons is not. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's just the the other part. I, I know yeah. where, you, where you guys are coming from, and that and that's a good point. Uh, but it was nice for the corporation to just rob my essence, <laughs> steal years of life oh, for me. No. Can I ask? Can I circle back to bureaucracy really quick? Okay, because I'm just I'm just thinking about Silicon Valley again because I brought it up. That's a Mike Judge show, right? Yep. yep. Is that kind of like him? making a gentle case for bureaucracy a little bit because those guys are basically what Peter and Michael Bolton would be like in the, and in the 20, in the 20 teens in the Bay area. And they are like, they are very creative. They work for themselves. They are excited about their work. They also have no clue what they're doing business wise. They do need some middle management, right? Like they, it's like they're the the things that they keep getting themselves into is because they don't have any like business decision or oversight or sort of like stepped back from the product mindset. They're all creativity and none of the other stuff. Like, do you think my judge is like kind of like rethinking this as he got older? That's interesting. I don't know about that, but yeah, I do think he's. It's in a way a sequel to Office Space, recognizing the that the times have changed. But yeah, a very different. Space. Don't they also, by the time they get their own group together and they're and they've got their own company, um, Pied Piper is what it's called, right? Yes. They they are starting already again to deal with bureaucracy again. It all kind of reshapes yeah, itself. It. They can't, right. you can't, you know, because they have to deal with their employees and the, and all the aggravation among them and dealing with these like coders that are all weird introverts. You're right. You're right. right. I should say we haven't finished the series, so yeah. Um, but, but yeah, maybe that is the, that's the inevitable a suck. Great point. They need uh, to hire an army of Lumbergs. <laughs> I'm going to disagree with you, Dana, because I think Lumberg was the epitome of a terrible middle manager. He just walked around in his funny yeah. outfit, drinking his coffee out of the coffee cup with the name of the company on it. Yeah, did you get that memo and stuff? That he's, you know, if you're saying that in a bureaucracy it's the higher levels that get to be creative, then I'd have to argue that I didn't feel Lumberg was creative. I think he was he was a nice So let's we don't want him to be creative. You just want him to manage those machine yeah. and intelligent people in Silicon Valley. But let's get back to your movie there. Well, hold on. Let's I, talk I, about Lumberg. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Uh, we have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I I forgot. Mmm, yeah. You see, we're putting the cover sheets on all TPS reports now before they go out. Did you see the memo about this? He is he a good middle manager? Well, there are aspects <laughs> to which Lumbery, I think, actually is a decent middle manager. So one thing is that he's never he's not confrontational. He always lets people down with a light touch, right? He's never like harsh. Now, this could be to a fault because of course he's not direct enough to often, you know, Milton doesn't know he's been fired. But like, but but you know, and obviously the rest of the office hates him, but nonetheless, he doesn't rule with an iron fist. He he sort of rules under the pretense that the comp- that the people he's working with care about the company in a way that they clearly don't, and he just <laughs> keeps up that pretense despite their showing him that they do not give a shit. 
I think to some extent he's in a really difficult position because he has to, and what is he going to do? If he behaves like the guy that Jennifer Aniston, I don't even know that guy's name, Billy or whatever, the guy who's Jennifer Aniston's like, not boss, but the the, the guy who's like it at the same level. Oh, the her, pretty boy. Who's got 10,000 things of flair. pieces of flair. If he behaved like that guy, like hyper energetic, like let's go team. They, he, you know, that's not going to help, right? Like that, that would be <laughs> even worse, I think. So I think like his kind of taking this kind of laid back, low key approach, probably the best he's going to do, right? I don't know. That, that's the case for Lumberg for me. And he's also worried about losing his job since the two Bobs are all there and wondering why they're promoting Peter. Yeah, he doesn't like Peter. Well, for good reason. I mean, come on, let's defend Lumberg for a second. He doesn't like Peter because Peter didn't do the thing he asked him to do. He didn't come in on Saturday or Sunday and he was completely <laughs> rude to his face, like disrespectful to him. Like, I don't know. You're I, forgetting about how he did the wrong cover letter on the TPS report, I mean, that, whatever. Yeah. But he also <laughs> threw his desk down and stuff, yeah, right? He's, like, being a he's being a child. And Lumberg is, is not like being a dick about it. He's just like, I think this guy might not be a good employee. And he's, <laughs> he's not correct. Wrong, yeah. He's correct about that, right? Like, Lumberg <laughs> is right. Peter is not a good employee. He should not be promoted. I think there's like a kind of, there's a case for Lumberg to be made here, with, weirdly. <laughs> and, and ironically, he is promoted because he's just brutally honest. Because they're, the not, they're not stimulating him enough for giving him the opportunity to shine. That's what, that's criticism from the two Bobs. That's right. right. I mean, I think the Bobs are responding there to Lumberg, sorry, to, um, to Peter's honesty, as you put it. That's right. Um, which is lacking in that office, clearly, because Lumberg is not a very open and transparent guy. But I think, to some extent, that is the plight of the middle manager. Yes. You, ha you know a lot more information. And you cannot and be you transparent with everybody. It. You That's cannot. You can't because yeah. for, for legal reasons, but also just for culture reasons. Like, you can't, you have, like, all of the, you know, um, forms that tell you about how good everyone's doing, their productivity numbers and so on. You can't be going around being like, you suck, you're good. You know, you have to be, have a light touch, I think, when you're managing people. You have to know when to use the carrot and when to use the stick. And I, so he's in a really difficult position. And, you know, the that's a mark, I think, against the movie that, like, Lumberg is not really portrayed empathetically, even though when you think about it, he really, he actually has, there's a decent <laughs> amount of empathy to be had for Lumberg, given that he's in a very difficult position, right? He's squeezed, the middle manager is in, arguably the toughest position because they're squeezed from the top and from the bottom simultaneously. They have no friends, right? Right. They're just the guy, the middle guy who has to be like appeasing these guys and not be not pissing off these guys below him. And so in it's and, a real squeeze being a middle manager. Yeah. It seems I mean, hard. That's the plot of the wire. I would basically. be so stressed out. <laughs> it it is very hard. I have to agree with you. He did he did use wonderful language. He was not he did not carry a big stick and whack the people with it for sure. But I would argue that he was not a good middle manager in that he did not figure out how to motivate. That's one of the jobs of a middle mm -hmm. manager is figuring out how to motivate or stimulate the employees so that they are enjoying their job. He did not do that yeah, at all. That's true. So, I, But I, he gave him the Hawaiian shirt day. Yeah, okay. Well. <laughs> I, think the, I think you're right to some extent. But if you think about it, who's the only person who's actively rebelling? It's really only Peter. The rest of the office seems to have buy-in. Like the lady's really chipper on the phone next to him and Milton's doing his job just fine. It's Peter seems like he's this maniac lost cause that's like 
nothing was going to stimulate this guy. I mean, they give him a promotion and he just turns around and screws the company. Like, I, I don't think there was any hope for Peter. Not in that job, but, no. But Milton is also rebelling. Well, he's, re yes, because they're Poor why Milton. they screw him over, though. Yeah. Oh, I mean, okay. they, they squeeze him the, out. Burn the building down. Or, you know, <laughs> he doesn't talk about shooting anybody. He burned that shit down. Yeah. He did, yeah. He did. <laughs> Strickening them like guacamole. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, though, uh, that's what I want to just say, though, to culminate this, this part of the episode is just that I think a deeper and more um complex film would see that lumberg and peter actually have common cause mm -hmm. they're both in a position where they're having to do shitty jobs with getting no respect from anyone they're alienated from their labor they're it's just it's just terrible and the real person who sucks is the ceo of inatech Fuck that guy. <laughs> Fuck, that's the guy who's the worst, right? That's the guy who's ultimately profiting from all these people's labor and not trickling it down to them. He's the one collecting the huge ass check and just sitting on his duff or going to the golf course. That's the one we should be taxing at 99%. All right, sorry. I agree. Wow. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we felt the same way about our CEO. Yeah. Too. yeah. <laughs> Um, if we're, I just wanted to shout out the specificity of yeah. the like of the physical space of the workplace, which I have been in so many cubes, so many cubes in my life. I moved like many times a year, oftentimes. Um, oh, you cube moved. I cube moved. Yeah, yeah exactly. You get, they break, they wheel in little bins for you and you dump all your stuff, all the little things you try to do to make like the oatmeal colored like <laughs> wall, it's like it, more cheerful. Tell us about some of those things. Uh, you had little I stickers my, I had, stuff. well, every, like, yeah, I, I, had a, I had, I had my flare. I had a bulletin <laughs> board that I put wrapping paper on, um, that a floral design. <laughs> I had like cards. I had pictures, you know, cause it's a depressing 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 thing to like be in like a little dark nook and i was i was originally put in like the darkest of nooks and uh, i couldn't keep a plant alive <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't keep a cactus alive i couldn't it was legitimately like one of those like succulents and it died um poor thing <laughs> but also the the i think the copier stuff really like spoke to me oh my god i became like a like a amateur photocopier uh technician? like technician yeah yeah you have to you <laughs> one have of to. my jobs when i worked and i did so much collating and stapling and copying all day long and it would get jammed and i just knew that baby so well i was like oh i know which tray is bothering you today let me let me actually make one more point on bureaucracy actually to come back to that from the printer thing so okay so oftentimes, i was like oh, tell my printer story no but oftentimes <laughs> That it gives an example of a case of unpaid extra labor that falls on mm. whoever can just do it or knows a little bit more or is willing to put in that effort. Whereas in actual in a good bureaucracy, that kind of job would have been farmed out and officially designated, and they might have had to have a meeting to do that. But nonetheless, <laughs> that's a fairer position. And oftentimes, it is the case that it's the person. So take take the office kitchen. That's another example. Mm. It's often the person who just is the cleanest. Who's like, all right, I'll just deal with this. And nobody, right? Everyone else is just being a slob. They're yeah. not wiping down the microwave or whatever. And then there's someone who's just like, fuck it. I just got to do this. It's disgusting, right? And, you know, a bureaucracy could help there because mm -hmm. they could say, you know, your job is to clean the fridge and your job is to do this and you have to do this. And like, we're going to decide that and it's going to be written on this, you know, pasted to the per fridge with your name yeah. on it. 
um, and hold people responsible. But I, you know, just like you would in a dorm room, have a chore chart. Yeah, yeah. But again, that stuff. <laughs> often, again, the labor just falls to whoever is, and often that person is also the person who will fix the copier because they're just like, I'll just do it because whatever. yeah. And then you know that is unfair. No, not again. I, why does it say paper jam when there is no paper jam? I swear to God, one of these days, I, I, I just kick this piece of shit out the window. You and me both, man. Thing is lucky I'm not armed. Piece of shit. Yeah, I will say there was a photocopier technician. It's just that he was a real sexual harasser. And so I was like, am I going to deal with Trey too? Or am I going to deal with him today? I'll give you, I'll, yeah, but I'll give you I'll give you a less less extreme example of this. Replacing the paper in the copy. Oh, totally. Right? Yeah, 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 people yeah. that like, they don't replace the paper. They just yeah. like, oh, my thing didn't print. I printed 60 pages and only got 45, whatever. And they don't replace the goddamn paper. So yeah, well, they might be late for one of their 17 meetings, that's though. True. So you don't that's know. True. And they don't hit clear. Oh, and yeah. you start your print job oh, and yeah. you got some that paper in and you got, the last, you got yep. the last 15 <laughs> yeah, of his there thing. You go. There you go. In office life, man, incentivizes bad behavior unless the bureaucracy comes in and holds people accountable. Um, I do think it's interesting that there was this common theme among alienation among 1999 movies. There was the American Beauty, which won Best Picture that year. Clearly, the, the most clear case, I think, of the uh, the kind of ennui of the middle class in mm -hmm. the 90s uh depiction of that um and then you have also the matrix clearly uh you know neo is works as a kind of unsung computer programmer who like moonlights uh you know as a as as like i don't know as like this like hacker by night and you know he gets he realizes that this entire world he's been living in is this sort of fantasy thing but like that same thing is of course a metaphor for like yeah you work in this office cubicle and like there's a real world outside like you should go out and experience it or whatever um fight club i think it's incredible yeah. that all these movies came out in the same year um you know fight club where it's again it's the same you you could put you could double feature office space and fight club they yep. have the same message it's just like get out of your office and go work with your hands right it's just like that's how you reclaim your sense of humanity and uh, authority over your life is to go out and like you know do stuff with your hands either beating people with your hands you know destroying the system as they do in fight club or uh you know just being a construction worker in office space yeah um but yeah i think it's interesting that there are a lot of these movies a couple other ones are the insider and bringing out the dead which are less clear about this but deal with bureaucracy and in in, in in alienation in, in interesting ways but yeah, it is interesting that this was a real theme among some of the best movies in 1999. I was just thinking about um, thinking about Fight Club and, and Office Space as a double feature, and I hadn't really been thinking about Office Space as like a as a particularly masculine response to that kind of alienation. Fight Club certainly is, but I think there's also it's a fairly I mean it's a male dominated movie, yes. Yes. Um, and you know like the beating of of the yeah. the beating of the photocopier, the burning things down, that sort of aggressive physical violent response to that kind of alienation and and ennui. Um, it is I think his masculinity is bound up in, exactly. in feeling separated from his work, and then he and and the move to go be a construction worker. I, th I think that's exactly right. Yeah. There's no surprise that Peter Gibbons is cuckolded, right? His mm, girlfriend is cheating mm, on him. Yes. He, it, masculinity is, I think, a crucial component of yes. this where he has, he feels by working this white collar job that is like, you know, he just sits around all day. He does nothing that like keeps him in touch with his, 
you know, early human ancestors, so to speak, <laughs> that he has lost some element of his masculinity. He's lost elements of his testosterone and that kind of thing to the extent that his girl, he's so like checked out, his girlfriend's off cheating on him and so on. Um, I think that that's right. I think you also see it in the character of Michael Bolton, who listens to gangster rap. Yes. Right. He's sitting in his car all the time, just like rocking out to gangster rap and like, you know, clearly compensating for like what he feels like he's like a nerdy guy, but he's and you know, he won't listen to it loudly when there's a black person on the street. Um, but like you, recognizing that he's appropriating this music for his own ends. Yeah. But, like, and you pointed out he's got Navy SEALs posters. Yeah, Navy SEALs posters. And Snoop exactly. Doggy Dog. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. In his cubicle. Yeah, exactly. Like he he's going to be the kind of guy who when Black Hawk Down comes out in a few years, he's going to be like, that's my favorite movie, which yeah. it's a good well, call, actually. listen, a lot a of people call. feel that. Justin. Yeah, it's a good call. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, how different can you be from, from uh, writing software and, and being a Navy SEAL? But I think that's the thing. And Fight Club really makes yes. this explicit, which is the idea of connecting masculinity and agency. Like if you're a man, you have agency over your life. That's the thing Peter Gibbons has none of, really. Mm -hmm. He has no agency over his life. He's bound up with having to do this work for other people that he has no say in and he feels like is meaningless. And it, and so how do you reclaim your manhood? You have to like attack the system, so to speak. You have to like get what's yours and Peter does it by ripping off the company. But um, in Fight Club, it's obviously more dramatic. But um, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a you, you get that as a real common theme throughout all those movies, actually. Same with The Matrix, too. Same with American Beauty. American I mean, Beauty, for he has sure. A, he has like an affair with, with a teenage, teenage girl. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, I mean, it is really interesting that these movies are all kind of coalescing around this time. There was something kind of in the water probably in the late 90s that was people were just like picking up on and and um, and responding to. And I, I think, you know, actually, if I can just pontificate slightly on this, I think to some extent, <laughs> I wish you would. it's a response to the Michael Bay fueled blockbusters that came that preceded it, right? The Roland Emmerich, Michael Bay blockbusters that precede this time in 96, Independence Day, 98, I think, uh, Armageddon, and so on. And there's this kind of machismo working class machismo that's portrayed in those movies and then you get these guys who sort of see those movies but they're not those guys they're office workers and they're like but i want to be those guys i don't want to be this cog in this machine and so how do i do that and now i'm realizing that my life sucks in comparison how do i like reclaim that autonomy of like i want to be the guy who like drills a hole in the moon and or whatever in the asteroid and <laughs> nukes it or whatever <laughs> That's oh. how we're getting. He dr not the moon, but he drills in the, in the asteroid. I was like, who's drilling holes in the moon? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, okay. So that could that could partly also account for like what you know is happening. You know why the culture is sort of receptive to this kind of movie in this moment. Mm -hmm. um, Did you know that? So here's an interesting point on that. Ron, sorry, um, uh, Mike Judge was basing this on his experience working in Silicon Valley in the 80s. Really? Yeah, it was not 90s. And so he was in the Bay Area too, mm -hmm. not Texas? Yeah. Is he from the South? He's from though? Texas. Okay. Yeah, I think he's from okay. Texas. But okay, because this movie, I mean, I have a, such a Dallas love for this yeah. movie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he had just worked at this software, this sort of graphics software company in the 80s for a short period of time and and this that was the only time he worked in a in a kind of office. Yeah. So then he went and in the 90s he was doing these comics and Beefus and Butthead and 
and uh, the Milton comics that gave birth to this movie. And so, um, yeah, I think that. Wow, it's wild how much. And then he comes back to that same video. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's yeah. wild how much that changes. But it's really, I mean, it's interesting also just to think like, I think probably, yeah, the 80s computer culture was probably kind of like whatever accounting culture would be now. Like it just wasn't glamorous at all. You know, and now it's like every, literally every college major is like, you're either a computer science major or something else. Econ. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 It's like, it's in MIT, it's there's such a demand for computer science now. It used to be engineering, but now everyone's yeah. like, no, 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 we're we're CS. Everyone is CS plus something. And mm-hmm. it's just because they really, the, the thought is now like, if you can't code, like y- y- you're sort of obsolete in this economy. Yeah. And so these guys who could code in the nineties and eighties, like, I know there's, they were, I know all know. those eighties comedies, you know, where like, there's the nerd with the pocket protector. And they're like, Oh, you're going to go play with your computer. You know? I know it does. <laughs> that's what it was. And now it's just like, Jesus, those guys all like, <laughs> they have, they have all, they rule, they literally rule the world. Yeah. I mean, Bezos, Zuckerberg, and, uh, and Elon, right? It's like tech guys now are like the complete rulers. But anyway, um, so why don't we talk a little bit about, uh, some of our favorite scenes and lines? So, um, what do you, do you have some? I do. Yeah. <laughs> part, in part of my life, I actually did, um, medical education programming as an external consultant and so i actually kind of liked the two bobs um who they're bob very, Slidell, they're very positive uh yeah played mm-hmm. by john c mcginley and bob porter who was played by paul wilson um and i think it was the bob slidell that i liked i, I believe this was his line mm-hmm. um he was asking um one of the characters um who was uh, tom Played by Richard, is it R- Rael? I don't know. Um, he had said, what exactly is it you do here? <laughs> I thought it was just the, the cutest way he put it because they were both listening so carefully as they were interviewing all of the people to kind of get a sense of, they were brought in to sort of downsize or to see how you know they could make this company a bit more efficient. Um, and so they were interviewing everybody. And a lot of them, of course, were saying, you know, trying to explain why, what they did for their job. And that's where um, the character Tom, um, you know, was trying to explain it. And um, they were just, they were really trying to, you know, get things out of well, him. He, in, wasn't, in a, he wasn't, he turns out his job is, is to do nothing. really it's shit. Kind of, he has yeah, nothing. It, it, he does nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. His secretary does. That's the right. other thing that I think feels so different now looking back on that. When they all have secretaries. Are, well, offices are so lean now. Yeah. Like oh. those jobs that left, you know, in 08 and stuff never came back. And so like this, the idea of somebody being an intermediary between an intermediary between intermediary right. like feels like so foreign now. Like everybody has to kind of do two jobs worth of, <laughs> of yeah. uh, and stuffed into one. So I, you know, um, that question of like, what exactly do you do here? They'd be like, well, I do this and this and this for the most part. That's right. the offices that I that I had. Uh, there wasn't that much bloat. <laughs> right, right. Feels crazy that there would be an office that would for a guy. What was it? So he takes the data and then... He takes it from the... So he's an intermediary between, between the customer, the customer and, right. the, and the coder. And the coder. And the coder. Yeah. Right. But then there's also two secretaries yeah. on that in between. Right. Yeah. And so they said, so you, so you literally pick the paper up. Well, no, not really. I said, well, what exactly is it you do? Because they're right. The secretary actually 
took it. So that was kind of funny. I found that whole little that it's whole funny. little part was kind of, it was funny. As a good sequence. I, so as an external up. consultant myself, it's like I remember having to ask people and how it was medical education. So how is it? What exactly are you teaching this, the patients and <laughs> how exactly are you doing it? And I, yeah. I almost used, yeah. you know, similar language. So that spoke to me and yeah. I, I just really enjoyed that scene. <laughs> it's a good scene. And I, and I love those guys. I mean, I thought the consultant guys. The Bobs are so fun. Everybody so hates fun. them, but I thought they were pretty cool. No, they're they, fun. They did it in a nice way. I mean, they truly were trying to. <laughs> <laughs> they're fun and mcginley is always good i feel like I McGinley love McGinley. Is just he always shows up yeah what's your favorite scene or line uh well i i just stare at my desk <laughs> but it looks like i'm working i do that for probably another hour after lunch too i i'd say in a given week i probably only do about 15 minutes of real actual work <laughs> and it's not that i'm lazy it's just that i don't care <laughs> also an interview with the bobs yeah <laughs> yeah that way he can Two show how the bobs breathtakingly honest kind of guy that it's got upper management written all over him bobs were impressed with him yeah he wasn't, he well it's yeah the bobs assumed defense. that they that it wasn't hit it wasn't like by choice that he's doing that but just because like he hasn't been given the correct motivations or he'd be given the correct sort of he wasn't you know, challenged guidance. he wasn't challenged yeah, he wasn't enough, challenged you know, yeah so and also, the, you know, the, I like the Michael Bolton being a no-talent ass clown. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing, too, about the Michael Bolton you. thing is that Michael Bolton really had a resurgence because of the, the, Isle, of the Tortuga. Island, <laughs> Isle of Tortuga. What? Laura, do you have a favorite scene or <laughs> now line? Now back to the good part. Um, yeah, I. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Michael Bay movies. I had forgotten how cinematic this movie is in places. Um, or because... <laughs> <laughs> Talking about like the slow-mo stuff? Yeah, the slow-mo. And like I think the scene where they where they decide to to put the virus in and the and the handoffs, you get an aerial, you get an like a bird's eye view shot of them spinning their chairs and doing a handoff with the floppy disk. The fact that it's all about a floppy disk is like is yeah, funny yeah, too. Yeah, that's, that's um, there's a slow mo of the handoff behind the back and stuff, and it, of course frame. I'll play freeze two freeze frames, and they're all and they're playing rap. I forgot about that. I thought of it as a movie that's like funny, but like didn't have like a lot of like visual style apart from like that sort of leached out color, the way that they're gonna film, yeah. um, you know, off the Office TV show later. Um, yeah, it's all I like overlit. Overlit, yeah. And um, everybody's kind of wearing beige, except for the women that have like garish makeup. <laughs> I remembered that look to it, but I forgot that Mike Judge threw in these kind of these these filmy uh, flares, considering he was somebody that did a lot of uh, animation before this. Yeah. He was having fun yeah. with uh, with doing a feature film. Um, and I, I so I love that sequence. Then then moves into the beating of the copy machine. Yeah, I mean the printer destruction scene is is I think iconic. the most iconic scene yes. from the movie. Yeah, and so that's my obvious great. choice. But I but I do. I remember like as it. like a when I first saw this as a as like I guess a high school student. I was that seemed like really. I just was, I thought it was the funniest thing ever. Uh, um, but like, but yeah, but nobody's really struggled with a copy machine in high school, have they? Well, no, but I just, <laughs> I, it, what's f inherently funny is like a bunch of dudes in <laughs> button down shirts and yes, slacks beating be. up a piece of computer equipment is hilarious. To rap music? Come on, it doesn't, to die motherfuckers die, it's yeah. just funny. It doesn't matter 
you know, that you don't have any experience with a broken copy machine. This is hilarious. Okay. And I think Justin does. He's forgotten because both of our kids true, but, had yeah. to come to work and help mom and dad, you know, do some Xeroxing. <laughs> so you did want to pound that And I'll bet you they've had an experience no. with a How long have you lost an, off an off real office okay, job? Okay, so we want to get me into the talk, office job. Can we talk about okay, this? So this get, is my favorite Justin story. Okay, so first of all, your guy's copy was fine. Your guy's copier was perfectly fine. I mean, only three people used it. It's <laughs> still, it's, the problem is when a lot of people use it. Wait, and, and, and guess who had that tech job? And the hands up. <laughs> there you folks, go. There you go. Raw audio here, but my hand is up. I was. You were still was also an them. amateur <laughs> photocopier technician. Yeah. Um, so I worked as a temp for one week, mm -hmm. and this was so I was uh, I'd graduated college and I was um, back living in. I had I'd moved home. I moved back because I was I was taking a year off before grad school, so I'd moved home with you guys, and then. I was like interviewing for jobs at various places because I knew I'd have, a, I'd have a year where I needed to get a job. And then Davis called my alma mater and they were like, we need a grader, but only for the fall term and then a TA for the spring term. And there's a, there's a winter term in the middle. And I thought, oh yeah, I'll just do it. I'll find some temp work in the middle. And so in the middle, I went to this temp agency and actually I'm just... You guys, none of you probably went through I've been doing No, done I have. You've I've, done it. Yeah, Laura's yeah, done yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know you have to take like an aptitude test yes, or something? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so you have yeah. to do like a test which like ascertains that you can speak English and you can, I don't know. That you like, can use Word. That's a big thing. Yeah. Anyway, so I took this, I went to like, drove over to Sacramento, took this test and I was like, okay, this is already, this is a bad sign. But like this is the <laughs> bar that I have to clear. And then I got placed in a law firm in Davis. What I was doing was I was taking the staples out of documents and I was putting <laughs> various color coding to show, to keep them in the right order. So then they would get scanned in a machine and then somebody else would restaple the documents after. So I was one third of that operation. Mm -hmm. And um, I, uh, on Thursday, I was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, on Thursday, my, um, my music player, which was a Dell jukebox at the time that I got from you, uh, Rob, died. It just died. I don't. Something it went crashed or whatever. And that, so I was listening to music. This was pre-podcast, so I was listening to music all day, just doing this. And so Friday, it was no music, and it was it was really bad. And I thought to myself, "Yeah, I don't know if I could do this anymore." <laughs> and um, so I took my paycheck for the week, and I went and bought an Apple iPod. That was actually the first iPod I bought. And then I was thinking to myself. I never want to do this ever again. <laughs> I never want to work at this place ever. I mean, I felt like my brain was melting. Like I was going and doing like doing logic in the, you know, in the break room on my 15 minute breaks. But then I got a call from Davis on that Friday that, that a TA had, had, you know, had left or something had happened and they needed me to fill in for someone. And could I come? And I said, yeah, great, perfect. And I didn't even have a chance to call the temp agency to tell them I wouldn't be coming. Um, because they called me and said, they don't need you on Monday. Like, we'll call you if there's another gig that opens up. And I was like, don't call me again. I'm done. <laughs> that was it. I worked one week at this, at this, doing this menial. That was the first and only time. You had time. to unstaple something for one week. Yeah. And you were like, nope, I'm going to be a philosopher. It was horrible. Um, I can't be in an office Although I did also, when I was in, uh, one of the summer jobs I had was at an engineering firm. And I did meet some people at that firm who were kind of Milton types. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of cool, actually. We were kind of always muttering like about their bosses under their breath, and so that was that was kind of interesting. Again, menial work. What I was doing was helping them pack for a move, so we were just like 
ferrying things around. I got to do a little bit of like stuff with like circuit boards. Very, again, very menial. It was just like solder this, move this over here, that kind of thing. That's cool. And yeah. I, I'm going to give a shout out to that family in Colorado. Um, I don't know. Am I allowed to say the company name? Yeah, I'll just bleep it out if not. Okay. No uh, Seeker uh, actually uh, had to do with landing. They built the landing gear for the Mars rover to get it up. Oh, that's so cool. It, it is a big time. That's cool. And you moved some company. boxes there. And I moved some boxes that's there. Right. And that's I, cool. Yeah, and, and I got and we people were next staplers. door neighbors. <laughs> next door neighbors. To yeah, the they were nice enough to give me company. a job in the summer and actually give my friend a job too. So we, and, and I, I, I then realized why people take up smoking because if you smoke, you can get more breaks because uh, then you have to go outside to smoke. And that I was like, yeah, Matt would go out and smoke and I, I didn't smoke. So he had more breaks than me. And I was like, this fucking sucks. This job, <laughs> these jobs are so fucking menial. Like the thing is, is that like that kind of work is, is really tedious and menial, but it's like, it's, it's the kind of thing. It's just any kind of labor work I find tedious and menial. But like, I think, <laughs> but I think, see, there are people that that's okay for. Sure. I mean, like there Peter Gibbons. There are people that need to think and there's people that need to do and think about the engineers who were trying to figure out how to make the proper gear and they retested and retested. Um, those people, you know, are need those other people below them to solder those circuit boards yeah, and stuff. So I, I mean that. again, there's the a circuits. there's a there's a blend and I'm just saying I, I if I wasn't a philosopher, I think I would have jumped off a cliff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you, so can I say my favorite scenes? I got a whole yeah. bunch of different scenes. So I'll just go through some ones that I think are kind of funny. So the sequence where he's trying to escape from Lumberg at the end of the day, where he's like ducking under and he's looking up, <laughs> he's tracking Lumberg. And like, that is, is such a fun comic sequence. And also, and then of course, at the very end, he like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And then he turns around and Lumberg's right there. And it's like a horror movie, like <laughs> yeah. jump scare. But that scene is a is is a mirrored scene in the movie of the same year, The Matrix. There's a scene mm. exactly like that in The Matrix where Neo has to escape the agents and right. Morpheus is on the phone with him telling him where to go, like duck into this cubicle. And That's right. It's really interesting that they're this, using cubicles as kind of like mazes to get away from yeah. superiors is like, that's kind of... Well, we're all rats in a, in a giant cubicle maze. So the other line I like is, uh, I just think it's fun. His Ron Livingston's delivery is good. He's like, yeah, well, that may be. But at least I never slept with Lumberg. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you're a thief. He's like, well, at least I didn't sleep with Lumberg. <laughs> I like that line. Uh, and then we already talked about this one, but like, what if we're still working at Inditech in 50 years? And then Samir says, well, it would be nice to have that kind of job security. <laughs> That's a great line. Um, I was like that Michael Bolton is casually putting 16 to yeah. 17 things of sugar in his coffee during yeah. that scene. Wonderful. Um, and then the other the other part I think is 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 low-key one of the best parts of the movie is when they're singing happy birthday to Lumber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the way I would sing. <laughs> happy birthday. It's like a funeral march. <laughs> and he's just sitting there like smiling and getting ready for his cake. Oh my god. Oh man! So those are some of my uh, some of my favorite lines and scenes. <laughs> well, that was—I mean, this is a fun movie to watch. But what struck me watching it now again mm -hmm. uh, is I was almost a little uncomfortable uh, because Peter was talking about shooting people, and mm -hmm. of course Milton 
is mumbling about, I'm going to burn this place down. And in fact, he did. And it, it, it just, yeah, during it, working hours too. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, that for me felt uncomfortable because now, unfortunately we live in a time when we do have an awful lot of workplace yeah. violent episodes. So the humor of that, it just, it felt a bit uncomfortable in to back in the day. Uh, Justin, you were saying this was done probably pre-Columbine. You know, Columbine was 99. So this, but either way, the movie would have wrapped filming before yeah. then. But yeah. I feel like there's a sort of lightness about like people joking about like going postal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that was like in the 90s before, before you know, office place and, and school shootings became almost like a monthly yeah, occurrence now, like, mm-hmm. which is horrible. horrible. But yeah, yeah. 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 I think there was like this, like feeling that it was like a fringe, you know, thing about like, just like, Oh, what it is about, what is it about postal workers? Mm-hmm. But it's, but like, but now we're seeing it's like increasingly white men too who are feeling impotent for whatever reasons, the very things that that the ninety ninety nine movies are exploring, um, but in this like really violent consequence. But yeah, it is. Yeah, the, they make like three jokes about it. It feels really icky. Yeah. And I mean, it plays like the it's the climax of the movie and it's kind of played mm-hmm. for laughs mm-hmm. and it solves all of the problems of the lead characters. Right, right, right. So. Well, that's true. Yeah, but the but it's still he he um the money and the confession note was written on paper. So, <laughs> but uh, Those yeah, yeah. So I mean, I it 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 you know fit in the movie, but now it just is a little bit more uncomfortable. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's tough. Mm. That is tough. What's a downer? I mean, I would not to end on a downer note. I'll just give you one more piece of fun trivia about this movie. So, Please. The the cultural impact of this movie was kind of, um, I think, remarkable in a lot of ways. The Milton stuff was like a, like a recurring joke in a lot of offices about the stapler, right? The mm-hmm. stapler, you could not like buy the red swing line. Oh, yeah. They sold branded. it at Hot Topic. My yeah. high school boyfriend had a Milton. I believe you have my staples shirt. Yeah. Yeah. So, but here's an even more sort of surprising and, um, I don't know, impact potentially more impactful uh, uh, result of the movie. So tchotchkes where jennifer aniston works we haven't talked about jennifer aniston it's okay if we don't have much to say but where she works they have to have flair and that was based on tgi fridays Mm, oh very clearly based on tgi fridays yeah before this movie required their servers to wear flair do they okay after this movie oh my gosh they they took that away <laughs> so TGI Fridays, it doesn't require flair for their service anymore. Do they just strongly suggest it? I don't. Yeah, Do they I think dress they like the people in Flingers now or whatever. Yeah, exactly. They're now at Flingers. <laughs> God, the names of those places. Um, I also wonder if it was a satires like the like Office Space and maybe even The Office to some extent that led to some of those office innovations in Silicon Valley and elsewhere to this kind of, no, we're going to make the office fun. We also office space. It's not like that. It's going to be this open office environment where it's all going to be glass walls where, you know, you can write on the walls and we're going to have these weird pod things where you can go and have a rest and we're going to have, <laughs> I don't know, like a cool cafeteria that's just, that's free and it's for anyone who works here. I do wonder if those, some of these, implementations were a reaction to the impression that people had of the soulless office that, you know, they get from a movie like this, which turned out to have quite a bit of cultural 
impact, right? Mm-hmm. Not that you would have expected that from its theatrical run, but um, so I thought that was kind of cool. But anyway, I thought that's cool about TGI Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor TGI Fridays. <laughs> um, all right. Well, with that note, which is a positive note, because no flare is good. Uh, no requirement for flare. No requirement. Some people might want to wear flare. Some people might not. The problem with actually, I won't, <laughs> get into that. I won't get into that. There's a problem with that, though. Tell me. Well, the problem is that when you don't have explicit norms like that, and it's just like, do what you want, uh, implicit norms develop. Yes. To when so you're like, oh, you're not really, you're not really kind of living up to the standards set by that guy, Brian, over there. And so, you That's know. That's what Jennifer Aniston says. Yeah, she exactly. says, if you want me to have 37 pieces of flair, you need to make that an explicit standard. Exactly. <laughs> That's the problem with not having clear sort of rules, but this kind of invitation to you know, express yourself and then you're going to be judged if you're not doing it as well as someone else. Um, okay. I want to ask you guys one more question. Yes. I want to ask one more question before we wrap up. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. Peter Gibbons' yeah. arc. Do we feel like that was a satisfying arc? Mm. He goes from like hating his job to getting hypnotized, sort of being in this weird hypnotized state to like, attend, you know, ripping off the company, feeling guilty about it, giving back the money but not really getting punished for that and then becoming a construction worker. Like, is this, does this arc feel satisfying? I, I wasn't clear to me. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to be a construction worker? I, I, I want to just, uh, you know, uh, sit and just do nothing. <laughs> in fact, I'll be doing that in a few months. Yeah. Congratulations. It's called retirement. Um, Yay. But, but I, but I guess, yeah. Mm. I mean, Peter doesn't really succeed in doing nothing though. He, he finds another job that he, find satisfaction in but that's what we, yeah that's what you talked about was you know the sat the finding that job that does give you satisfaction so yeah if that is the end game then yes yeah, he, he finds it he would have found it yeah i mean so i we really if you felt like maybe a lot and all of sympathy for peter uh given the socioeconomic situation of 1999 um I felt a lot of um, I I saw myself in Peter a lot, particularly in the scene where they talk about high school uh, counselors asking you what you if you had a million dollars what you do. Uh, I still haven't figured out what I want to do like for work and for like what my passion is. I don't know that I ever will. And there's like a kind of panic about that that I feel in like a an environment where where I'm surrounded by like really talented and driven and ambitious people. And I'm sort of sitting there being like, am I just like deeply unambitious? Like, (laughs) and is that okay (laughs) if I'm unambitious in a professional sense? But I think Peter kind of does get to a place where he doesn't like, it's not like he's passionate about construction work. He's just found a way to be happy in, you know, in something that he has to do for his life and for his livelihood when he's not hassled by eight bosses. But you get the sense that he's made a good connection with people. The reason that he just mm-hmm. that he comes back that he decides to turn himself in, um, you know, is so that he can save his friends from having to yeah, go to prison. You know, he's yeah. he always had those work friends, but they develop something deeper. And and when they say you're not a good person, that really hurt him. Like he does have he does have a compass in that way. Yeah. He cares about being a good person and looking after the people he cares about and he's gonna be more honest with with joanne and like he's gonna get over his sort of masculine pettiness about who he slept she slept with and who he hasn't you know and he like i I think he's like i think he has come to just sort of 
there's an arc in his personal connections. You get the sense he was totally detached before. That's he had a girlfriend that he didn't really like, but was just sort of going through the motions with. Um, like willing to hypnotize himself into like into liking her. You know? <laughs> uh, and and now he's like, he's come to a different place there. What's interesting is like there isn't seem to be the 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 there's no like worry about like the white collar blue collar stuff i don't think in this movie like because i think it's non-judgmental about the, about the yes yeah. yeah that's what i mean about like defining yourself as ambitious or not ambitious yeah. Yeah. i think there's like a some in some circles being like oh you work in an office where you have like a ladder you can climb and you wear a suit to work and somehow that's more ambitious than wearing work boots even though like maybe you can actually be do really well for yourself wearing work boots and, and doing construction work. But I think sometimes there's like a, there's like a difference of thought about like which one is the more ambitious path. Um, but that's definitely not what's held up as important in this movie. Right. Because didn't also um, Lawrence, the neighbor, he was not white collar. No, yeah. And Lawrence was a happy guy. Yeah, yeah, that's where he gets the job he because with Lawrence. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So he kind of sort of also sees yeah, that it's not just the white collar job that will give you satisfaction in life, that there are, you know, other jobs that can also be tremendously yeah, satisfying. Simpler. Yeah, yeah. Simple <laughs> <piece>. <laughs> had his beer, had his, had his uh, commercials he liked I to guess watch. <laughs> here's the only complaint I have, which is that the movie doesn't, it's, the movie doesn't really interrogate or diagnose why it is that this is a somewhat universal phenomena mm -hmm. in our society where people feel like they have to have ambition to do certain things. And then when they perform those tasks, they get nothing, no, no, joy. no joy or yeah. value out of them. Yeah, And that's a real like horrible systemic problem. Like that's an endemic problem to like, the society not out, you know being driven purely by market forces which do not care about that kind of stuff at all and i think that that is really unfortunate it's really unfortunate that you know it's great that peter sort of found his way but there's a lot of other people in peter's shoes who can't shake the thing that you're talking about laura about say white blue collar or whatever and they just are going to live you know, sad and unfulfilled lives as a result. And it's partly a result of like material need, but it's also partly a result of like the culture not valuing a kind of independent thought mm -hmm. and allowing people the opportunity to sit and think about stuff for more than five seconds to just have time to explore, uh, you know, College is sort of that time for a lot of people, but increasingly not because no. everyone's coming into college and just majoring in computer science or econ and going on their way. It's it it used to be that point where you could really okay now just what am take I classes in? and yeah. whatever and and try to find your path and you that's why people would major in English and philosophy because they're like this is interesting and I'm not really worried about the job I'm going to get after this because I'm trying to find something that's fulfilling to me in my life. So um, that's why I push for lifelong learning yeah. and exploring <laughs> lots of opportunity. And I think high school counselors should maybe make people watch office space <laughs> to say <save laughs> people. Just be like, you don't want to have a Lumberg in your life. With, <laughs> you know, think about what you want to do yeah. before you get, you know, 
I mean, there is people a, get tracked so early, though. That's There's true. Such an yeah, increasingly well, professionalization. If you're going to major yeah. in any of the sciences, you have to do that from day one because yeah. you have to take you know biology one, biology two, whatever you know, micro you know whatever it is, you know, organic chemistry to do all the things. There's ten things you have to do before that, so. It's really difficult, and um, there's not really any opera, you know, chance for free free exploration. But yeah, I was going to mention one thing though um, about what you said, uh, Cheryl. It's it's a kind of alternative to what I was suggesting, which is a kind of exploration about different paths and find something meaningful for yourself at a point when you're making a decision in your career choice, your career trajectory. But you were suggesting something different, which I liked, which is that no, you should. You should kind of constantly be reassessing. You should kind of constantly be learning. And that could provide a fulfillment for you, even if your job itself isn't, right? So if you're, you go to work and you do your stuff and you come home and you, you know, you read literature and you, and you discover a discussion with your friends or you watch movies and you discuss them with your friends or whatever, you talk philosophy, you have an instrument, you practice, you have a fascination with classical music or art. Those are things which can provide fulfillment for your life that you're in a position to pursue with the job because you have the material needs met by your job. That, and that that's something that's not explored at all in the movie, that like mm. you can have these things simultaneously. And that's part of the lifelong learning I think you were suggesting. Because yeah. that's also making the suggestion that we should put 90% of our effort into work and come home and, you know, do you have time and energy? And I'm saying maybe when you have a dull job like this, like Peter... If he saw it as, look, I go to work and I just do, you know, this little bit of work and I don't have to expend that much, you know, of my <laughs> energy. I mean, he's got to do a good job, but then he comes home and has, like you're saying, a lot of other extracurricular, so to speak, or extra life activities that you do that give you the fulfillment. The job pays the bills, but life and the zest for life can, can be, be separate, other, right? Yeah. That's a job career distinction. Yeah. yeah. I think Joanne suggests that to him. She says a lot of people don't like their jobs, but you go yeah. and you do it and you find something else mm-hmm. um, in your extra time. And I think, I mean, that is sort of incorporated. We know we, the only thing we know about Peter besides that he doesn't like, he likes to do nothing and he likes it. He likes Kung Fu is that he likes to go fishing. That gets brought up a lot of times. And he real so he like, he's just, he is reassessing. He's figuring out, I don't like to do something that's not tangible to me. And I like to be outside. And I'm going to find a job and like probably there's going to be irritations in this job and I'm not going to care deeply about whatever, you know, site I'm on. But I do have a value of like I like to be outdoors and I like to work with my hands. And so that's what I'm going to try and like that's how I'm going to fit those pieces of my life together. Yeah. I think that, you know, so yeah. that could be built into that's the true. movie. No, I think I think that's right. <laughs> I th- no, definitely. And and I just think it's interesting that there are these kind of two two strategies, you mm-hmm. know, and that, that's, that's a helpful thing to keep in mind that the kind of lifelong learner and then the sort of having the opportunity to assess and reassess your yeah. life and your options is, is really important. And it's, it's for a lot of people, it's just sad that they can't, they don't have the opportunity for your either. Yeah. And that's the sad thing is that you just, you're paycheck to paycheck and, or you have two kids and a house and a mortgage and you just can't, you just, you're not in a position to be like, I'm going to just take, couple months off and decide whether I really want to can do this job anymore and I want to yeah. go do something else. Yeah, like, it's like those, those are... There's not a position to do that. Totally, yeah. Like, it's a, it's a really it's a really privileged position in order to have, like, income-wise or time-wise, yeah. in order to have the time to think and assess. There's also, I think, in some circles, at least, like, a, a social pressure. Oh, of course. You not know? to mention, yeah, not yeah. just economic, of course. To, to, to swerve. To keep You know, the, yeah, I, you I to, think some people gonna are going to respect... You're going to lose all your friends. Yeah, some people are going to respect the hell out of you and a lot of people are going to be like, what is that person doing? Yep. You know? Yeah, they're going to talk poorly of you. Yeah. yeah. So, 
yeah so it's 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 obviously hard for a lot of reasons but um but these are the challenges that we face you know and uh, <laughs> in 2021 yeah uh, we're all looking for fulfillment in our lives. It's hard to find it in the office, but you know, maybe Lumberg has it. <laughs> this has been our pro Lumberg podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So thanks everyone for listening. We are at CowsPod on Twitter. You can find us on the web at cowspod.wordpress.com. And I have no idea what's coming up next. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Yeah. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having us. Hey, 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 thanks for doing that. Thank you. Did you guys have fun? Yeah. Well, that was fun. I think my lights are fairly light up.